You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Daughters of ambitious working mothers, they tend to make more money in their own professions than the daughters of stay-at-home mothers. The sons of ambitious working mothers tend to be more equitable in splitting the domestic labor with their partners. And those two findings, to me, seem extremely significant. Growing wealth while supporting your family isn't easy, but with a well-crafted plan, you can take on anything. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today because juggling finances can be overwhelming. You can find a better balance. Hey everybody, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Anyone who is a working mom or knows a working mom understands that these women are the backbone of our families and the workforce. But I also got to say, I kind of always hated the term working mom because all moms, in my book at least, all moms are working moms. There are lunches to pack and parent-teacher conferences to attend and kids to chauffeur, the laundry list, and don't even mention laundry, of our jobs goes on. And Some of us are also working as accountants, doctors, entrepreneurs, every other job imaginable while we try to juggle the rest and then scramble to make it to band rehearsals or soccer games or play practice. It has been a while since my kids were young, but I can remember how exhausted and harried, I would feel much of the time. And over the last few years, it's only gotten harder for moms who are also in the workforce. According to Pew Research, 58% of working moms with kids under 12 said it was difficult to handle childcare responsibilities because of the pandemic. Moms were more likely than dads to say they couldn't give 100% at work, that they needed to reduce hours, and that they had to turn down important assignments, even promotions, because of their difficulty balancing, another word I hate, work and parenting responsibilities. Today, fortunately, many moms who wanted to get back into the paid workforce have been able to do so. In fact, more mothers of school-age kids are working this year than they were in 2019. And historically, Almost all of the income gains that middle-class families have experienced since 1970 are due to the rise in women's wages. Look, we know that women's successes in the workforce, they are crucial to their family's financial success. Yet we also know that outdated negative attitudes about women in the workforce persist today. Mothers still feel the pressure to make sure, in many cases, that their jobs don't overshadow their family lives. We're often told that we have to sacrifice our professional success for our kids. Meanwhile, fathers are celebrated for nurturing both. Men actually earn more money and are more successful in their careers after becoming fathers, often because women are working behind the scenes to make sure the trains 
run on time. Is my frustration showing enough then? Look, it is no surprise that many women feel bad for focusing on our careers. I certainly have done my share of that feeling bad. But our guest today is here to help us let go of that mom guilt once and for all and unapologetically embrace our ambition. Laura Bazelon is a single mom of two kids. She's also a lawyer, a professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law and the director of the school's Racial Justice Clinic, which works to combat racial bias in the criminal legal system by representing prisoners who are seeking to overturn their wrongful convictions. Most recently, she published a book called Ambitious Like a Mother, Why Prioritizing Your Career is Good for Your Kids. Laura, where have you been all my life? Jean, I feel the same way about you. We are singing the same song in the same key. I just want to tell everyone that I found you when I found your article in The Atlantic called The End of Mom Guilt. We will link to it in the show notes. I read it and I was just blown away. And my producer, Catherine, reminded me that when I shared it with her, I wrote a single sentence, this is my life, get her for the podcast. So thank you, first of all, for writing it. You're so welcome. And I'm glad you could see yourself in the piece. And I think a lot of working moms do. And part of the problem is that because it's shameful or we feel ashamed, we don't connect with each other and we kind of suffer silently with our mom guilt. I should mention the piece in The Atlantic is an excerpt from your book, which everyone should read. Why do you think that it resonated with so many women and how did you come to write it? I think the resonance is that I'm saying the quiet part out loud. And like you, I really detest the term work-life balance. I think it's a fraud and a trap for women because it's not attainable. And yet the term by its very existence suggests that it is, and we should be striving for this perfect equipoise all the time. And the book and the excerpt came out of my frustration with the question that was constantly being posed to me. How did I balance everything? And the answer is I didn't balance anything. My life, like every working mother's and father's life is about imbalance, things going in and out of primacy and recency, by which I mean that sometimes my kids come first and sometimes my career comes first. And yet saying that out loud is anathema because a quote unquote good mother would never ever, ever let anything take primacy over her children. At least that's what we're told. And I think that that is profoundly unfair to women, does them a disservice, and quite frankly, does the children a disservice as well. I want to get to how it does the children a disservice, because I think that that is a part of the equation that we don't talk about nearly enough. But before we get there, in the book, you talk about how growing up, you looked up to a woman named Gretchen, who was your friend's mother, but that you later found out that her life was a lot different than you actually thought it was. So can you tell us her story? Yes. So Gretchen was the mother of two children. I thought she was the stay-at-home mother of two children. She was incredibly crafty. She hand-sewed her daughter's Halloween costumes, whereas my mom suggested that I wrap myself up in some leftover wallpaper. 
She was constantly making fancy food and fancy desserts. She seemed like she was always on time for pickup and drop off and constantly in the kitchen. And so when I thought about Gretchen, who is also very beautiful, I, in my mind, she existed as kind of the perfect mother. And my mother, who was the mother of four children and a full-time physician, was quite frequently late for pickup, for example, not particularly interested in doing the crafty stuff and sort of, in my mind's eye as a child, wasn't really that perfect mother. And then I looked up Gretchen when I was writing this book, and I have to tell you, I almost fell out of my chair because she is now an emerita professor, a full professor at UMass Amherst. And in fact, the whole time that I was worshiping her as a stay-at-home mother, she was furiously studying and working and writing to complete her PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. She subsequently went on the job market. And when she got a tenure track offer in Massachusetts, she left. And in fact, she ended up divorcing her husband and the family split up. One daughter went with Gretchen and one daughter stayed behind with her ex-husband. And that was the arc of her life and the arc of her career, completely unknown to me, hidden under the surface. First, her aspirations, and second, that she was really not happy in her marriage or in this domestic sphere that she was occupying. So once you found that, I mean, what did you take from that? And how did that change your perceptions? And let me just acknowledge that I am asking this question with plenty of my own baggage, right? I am the mom of two kids. I worked their entire childhood. And for many years, my daughter would say out loud that when she was grown up, she was going to be a mommy who didn't work. Like that was her ambition to be a mommy who didn't work, which killed me. And she has since taken a step back from that and has been admiring of the fact that I actually am a mom who gets shit done in her words. But it it was awful. It is awful. And I think like you, I'm on the receiving end of a fair amount of criticism from my children who say that I'm not a quote unquote normal mom. And in part, I think it's because I'm very driven and there are reasons for that. There's an economic imperative because I need to support us and keep a roof over our heads. And I want us to maintain a certain standard of living. And that requires that I work very hard. But the truth also is that it makes me feel incredibly alive and fulfilled to do my job. And sometimes what that means is that I'm not available to them in the way that they would like or maybe expect. And there's always these invidious comparisons with other mothers. Although the interesting part of that, of course, is I myself as a child, having made these invidious comparisons between my mother and Gretchen, also understand that there's a real fallacy behind them because of course you never know everybody's real, true, full story. And I think what I can say with some confidence is that when your daughter tells you you get it done, that's her way of saying that you are a very formidable and impressive woman in the world. And that's the thing I hope my children, including my daughter and my son, say about me, that that I was someone who got done and someone who they felt that they could be proud of, even though perhaps there were moments when they wished I was less relentlessly focused on getting all that stuff done. When we talk about getting rid of the guilt, 
guilt has been described to me in the past as a useless emotion. But I was raised by Jewish parents, and guilt is just a thing, right? And I think it's true in Catholic households. I don't know that much about other cultures to know if it's as pervasive as it was in ours, but it just... My parents were raised with it. They raised us with it. I'm sure I raised my kids with it, not just for being a mother who worked outside the home, but for not emptying the dishwasher and making there are a million examples. What do you think guilt is? Well, as someone who is Jewish and was raised by Jewish parents, I can affirm that it, guilt is built into every Jewish person's DNA, and it is embedded in us. I don't think it's an entirely negative emotion because it can act as kind of your conscience pricking you. But I also think it's really in overdrive, especially for working mothers. And what it does is make you anxious and distracted and unable to enjoy your life in the present moment because you're constantly thinking that you should be in the opposite place. When you're at work, thinking you should be at home. When you're home, you're thinking all the time, oh my gosh, I should be doing something for work. And if you just let go of that and say to yourself, I'm doing the best I can, I'm not perfect, and my kids are going to be fine, and persist, I think in the end of the day, you're better off. And it was actually really interesting, kind of, I got to interview both of my parents when I was writing this book. And what I realized was that my mom spent a lot of her life overcome with guilt for the reasons I just said. And my father, who was is extremely ambitious, traveled constantly and worked constantly, didn't really feel much guilt at all. And at the end of the day, I love my parents equally and I'm equally connected to them. So what does that show you? It shows you that my mom spent a lot of time twisted in knots, I think for no reason. And my dad got to enjoy more of his life because he wasn't plagued by that emotion. I can see exactly what you're saying in both of my parents. I lost my father about 15 years ago, but before he died, he was very ambitious and he loved his work and he went after what he wanted. And I still see my mother tied up in knots with guilt about not making the right phone call at the right time to the right person. How did you get rid of it? How did you let it go? It took me a really long time, and I wish I could tell you that I never feel guilty, but that's actually not true. It took realizing that I was going to have to live, in some ways, a really different life than my mother lived, although I deeply admire and respect her, and she was a role model in many ways, and that the life I really wanted was my father's life in so many ways, including the fact that, like him, I'm a trial attorney, like him, I travel, like him, I get really consumed by the cases that I am working on. And for me to be the person I felt like I was supposed to be in the world, it meant that I couldn't let that guilt hold me back. Although I will say there were a lot of sacrifices involved in kind of maintaining that mindset, including the fact that if you want to be that kind of working mother in the world, there's going to be a lot of judgment projected at you and, of course, your own internal judgment. And also, my marriage really couldn't survive my ambition and my sense of myself and I think probably my lack of guilt about all of it. And mine didn't survive it either. 
and my listeners know that I'm married now for the second time. I was married to my children's father for 17 years. I don't know that it was my ambition that tore us apart, but I got to tell you, it did not help. Do you think that that's because we marry too young? Do you think it's because we choose the wrong partners? Do you think it's because we don't acknowledge the level of ambition that we have in ourselves? I mean, this is just a big therapy session for me, by the way, right now. So what do you think it is about ambition that we as women, and maybe it's women of our generation, but and I'm a little older than you, but what do you think it is that we have such trouble acknowledging? Ambition is defined as wanting to excel and be acknowledged for your achievements. And that sounds really benign. And yet when we apply that word to women, it has these incredibly negative connotations. Look no further than Hillary Clinton, the Lady Macbeth of ambition, Kamala Harris, women who've just been dogged their whole life with this idea that they're grasping and avaricious just because they're very talented and want to excel in their field. And part of it because of that stigma is the hesitancy of all of us to apply the label to ourselves, both publicly, but also in our intimate partner relationships. And so if you had asked me when my now ex-husband and I were dating, if I would consider myself ambitious, I would have recoiled. And interestingly, almost every single woman I interviewed for my book, over 50, they all recoiled. They would all tell me, you should interview my friend. She's the really ambitious one, or I don't really like that word. They would substitute in a different word. And yet there's nothing actually wrong with the word. It's just gendered as we have applied it for generations. So a huge part of it, and that's why I titled the book Ambitious Like a Mother, is taking the word back. And I think to get to the other point that you made, that's very, very important. When we can't acknowledge to ourselves and to our intimate partners that we're ambitious, that's going to be a real problem in the relationship because we're not being completely honest about what we want for ourselves and for our lives and what that's going to look like once we decide, for example, to have a family. I call it the basic boring parts and they matter. They matter a great deal. And when you're in love, it's like staring at the sun. You're just blind. You're blinded by the desire and the emotion. And you don't stop and think about having those conversations. But they're actually incredibly important. And I know that my ex-husband and I never had them. And it's really too bad. I used the word once at a cocktail party. I had just had my first child. I met a man at a cocktail party. We were having a conversation about work. And he asked me if I was going to slow down now that I had this young child at home. And I actually said, no, I'm too ambitious. And you would have thought I threw a drink in his face. I remember it so vividly because he was just like, oh my God. And he literally said, a woman has never said that to me before. And I don't think I used the word again for a decade. I think probably running through his head as you said that is what kind of a mother is she? Probably. And in his mind, he was answering the question, not a very good one, because most men and plenty of women think that being ambitious professionally is irreconcilable with being a good mother. And actually, not only is that not correct, it's objectively false. There's a lot of research out there that suggests that the children of ambitious mothers thrive. And you could even argue in some cases do better than the children of stay-at-home mothers, although I do not say that to create some kind of a mommy war, which I find quite tiresome. Only to point out that this trope that we have of this woman striding off with her 
briefcase and her shoulder pad 1980 suit and the child begging on the sidewalk or being completely neglected is just a trope and a lie and it's very destructive. I think the most important thing for children, first of all, is quality over quantity time. And the research shows that working mothers can provide and do provide quality time. And the second thing is that kids need to understand that it's important to be resilient and independent and self-sufficient. And so when you're someone who's able to go out in the world and support yourself, you are modeling those really important life lessons for your kids. I would love to hear a little bit more about that research and what this does for our kids in a positive way. But before we do that, when we're talking about topics like raising kids and caring for our older parents, which a lot of us are stepping up to do at the very same time and planning for retirement, it is a lot to manage. And especially when you're trying to grow your wealth at the very same time. If you visit edelmanfinancialengines.com slash hermoney, you can schedule a free appointment with an advisor where you'll learn strategic ways to help meet your financial obligations, all while remaining focused on your own needs and your own dreams. With a well-crafted plan, you'll be ready for all of life's competing priorities. You can schedule your free appointment today at Plan efe.com slash her money. I am talking with Laura Bazelon, author of Ambitious Like a Mother, Why Prioritizing Your Career is Good for Your Kids. So the research, why is it good for our kids? What does the research tell us? There is a professor at Harvard who did this longitudinal study involving, I think, 100,000 families And it was not just the United States, but also other countries in Europe and elsewhere. And they looked in the study at the outcomes for children who had ambitious working mothers and compared education level, life satisfaction, salaries. And what they found was really interesting. The daughters of ambitious working mothers, they tend to make more money in their own professions than the daughters of stay-at-home mothers. The sons of ambitious working mothers tend to be more equitable in splitting the domestic labor with their partners. And those two findings, to me, seem extremely significant. The other thing that they found was when they looked at levels of happiness, comparing the children of working mothers and the children of stay-at-home mothers, there was no discernible or significant difference. And so even though we're constantly being made to feel guilty that we're making our children unhappy or they're going to spend their whole life on a therapist couch. And by the way, therapy is a good thing. So when people tell me my kids are going to be in therapy, I'm like, well, that's probably actually for the best because it will help them become (laughs) self-aware and get in touch with their feelings. Regardless, when we're being told we're ruining our children's lives, empirically speaking, that is simply not true. And I wish that that study was on every traffic light, on every billboard. I wish it was in every working mother's inbox because it's so important to understand that the way that they are pursuing their passion is not hurting their kids. It's actually helping them. I was just thinking as you were quoting those statistics, where is my t-shirt, right? I need it on a (laughs) t-shirt. I need it on the wall somewhere where it's just going to remind me when I'm having a particularly hard day because even though my kids are in their 20s, it's still there the feelings are 100% still there. I want to turn to this moment in time for two reasons. First of all, the pandemic has been really hard on women, particularly 
women who work outside the home stepped back in far greater numbers than men did. Where are we now? And how can we use the greater flexibility in the minds of, it seems like pretty much every employer who is able to be flexible, to help ourselves along? We're at this really interesting inflection point in the United States as a society because, well, the pandemic, as you pointed out at the top, was much, much harder on working mothers than working fathers. And they didn't just have the second shift. They had a third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh shift. At the end of the day, most mothers were able to hang on, sometimes by their fingernails and prove to the people that they worked for that they could do their jobs from home. And prior to the pandemic, making that assertion didn't have anything empirical to back it up. And most people firmly believed in FaceTime. And now we're just talking about professions where it's possible to work remotely under flexible conditions, and that's most of them. So the pandemic really upended the entire traditional structure of work. And in the wake of that, the question is, could women bargain for flexibility in ways that weren't going to make their lives a living hell? Not I'm there for you 24-7, but rather I'm there for you the same number of hours, but under my own steam and under my own conditions. And the answer right now seems to be yes. And that is because there is a scarcity in the labor market. And so there's more jobs than there are people applying for them. Employers are desperate to hire. They're also desperate to retain. Mm -hmm. And so just to give you one example, there was this mother that I followed. She was not a mother. She was thinking about getting pregnant when I started the book. And then over the course of it, she got pregnant, had a baby, took some time off from work that was paid. And then her boss said, okay, we're all going back full-time in person And she said, essentially, if that's what you're going to require, I'm going to leave and go somewhere else because I know I'm valued. I know I'm important. And I know that I can do this from home and I've proven it. And her boss backed down and said, you know what? We don't have to do it that way. And I think more and more women are doing that. They're either voting with their feet and leaving or they're bargaining. And because of the market conditions right now, a lot of those women have that leverage. And so I think the question really is, can we take the dismantling of the workplace that the pandemic created and make that paradigm work for women in a more permanent and humane way. And do you think the answer to that is yes? I do. I think it's yes, because people now understand that it's perfectly possible to be just as competent, if not more competent, when you have the flexibility to come in when you want and stay home when you want. Since that's now just an accepted reality that's been borne out by a couple of years now of pandemic conditions, it's no longer plausible to say to someone who's asking for that flexibility, no, 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 you absolutely have to do it the old way. There is no more old way. And so to me, the key question is, can women bargain for the flexibility while also making sure they don't get exploited and expected to work even more hours sort of as a condition Mm -hmm. of not having to do all this FaceTime. And that is something where women are going to really have to draw the line in the sand and be very, very firm about guarding their time. The other big trend or another big trend that has been underway for quite some time is the number of women as compared to men graduating from college. When we look at it, the last time I looked at the statistics, for every 100 men graduating from college, 132 women are graduating. What's that 
going to do to the dynamic in relationships and in workplaces and with guilt? So that trend has held steady or accelerated in the past decade. It's also true for graduate schools. So for example, in my field, more women are graduating from law school than men. And until recently, what we were seeing is at the top performing levels of professions. So for example, partners in major law firms, women were still the minority. They were falling off this career track, usually after they had children, because the strictures of the workplace were really just impossible for them to meet and take care of their children. And again, just pointing to sort of how the pandemic has changed expectations around work, it will be interesting to see if that dynamic changes. The other reason why I'm optimistic that it will change is that women are clawing their way into those top positions. And once they're there, they're turning around and doing things differently, I hope and expect for the women coming up after them. And if we really want to see permanent change, that's another responsibility that we all have. And I think about that a lot. It's like, look, just because we had to eat broken glass to get where we are doesn't mean that the women coming up behind us should have to. This hazing ritual is completely unnecessary. And the best thing that we can do for the younger women coming up behind us is to offer them a helping hand and a place at the table rather than seeing everything as a zero-sum gamer saying, because I suffered, you have to too. So I think people who have attained some degree of status and power and capital in the workplaces owe it to the next generation to make it a more welcoming and humane place if we really want to see true parity that's consistent with the numbers coming out of college and graduate school. I so agree with you. I started my career at Working Woman Magazine, which was the worst place for a woman to work. It was all women who felt like that, who felt like I'm going to force you to pay your dues because I was forced to pay my dues. And I think the world is different now. I hope the world is. I hope the world is different now. Last question. You're a lawyer. You know that there aren't just financial pressures on women at this moment. With Roe versus Wade overturned, there are legal pressures. There are political pressures. At a time when women's rights are being rolled back, are you still hopeful and optimistic? I am. I'm cautiously optimistic. I was devastated by the Roe decision, even though you could see it coming from a mile away. And to some degree, it's the inevitable outcome of the backlash against the Obama administration and going so far in a progressive direction as to elect a Black president who had a diverse administration and elevated a number of women. And we got in his place someone who is not only grossly unqualified and corrupt, but also deeply, savagely misogynistic. And that's reflected in, among other things, these these Supreme Court appointments that he was able to make. And so when you look at that picture, it's bleak. But on the other hand, as Barack Obama said, history moves in zigs and zags. It's not linear. And I hope and expect that there's going to be a reaction against what we've seen as increasingly regressive, retrenching, anti-woman messaging coming not just from the Supreme Court, but from conservatives and in particular the far right, that most people do not want to go back to The Handmaid's Tale. Most people want to move forward. And it's really a question of those folks mobilizing and forming the necessary alliances and turning out the vote to make that change happen. It may be that I'm unduly optimistic in part because I live in California and it's so progressive here. We have super majorities of Democrats in the House and the state Senate. And so we've been able to pass a number of very progressive laws. 
But I am hoping that the rest of the country starts looking more like California and less like Texas. I guess the jury is out, but I am hopeful. Laura Bazelon, this was a fabulous conversation. Thank you so much. Where can our listeners find more of you and your writing and your work? There's my website, laurabazelon.com, and it collects the various writings that I've done about work and family and also about criminal justice issues. You can find me on the University of San Francisco School of Law website and on Twitter at Laura Bazelon. And the book is Ambitious Like a Mother, Why Prioritizing Your Career is Good for Your Kids. Thank you so much. I hope we can do it again sometime. It was such a delight to be with Eugene. Thank you for having me. Her Money is supported by BCU, a credit union that helps its members take control of their money using a variety of financial tools and resources. BCU's passion is to empower people to discover financial freedom by providing caring support and services that create the value you deserve. Learn more at bcu.org. And Catherine Tuggle joins me now for our mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. That was an incredible conversation with Laura. That was a lot more revealing on my end than I was planning on. So I hope that our listeners don't mind that I indulged myself just a little bit, but I was really anxious to talk to her and I got a lot out of it. I hope that everybody else did too. I have to say, I have always embraced and loved the word ambitious. And I'm wondering what happened in the 15 years between our birth dates mm-hmm. <laughs> to change women's opinions of the word ambitious because I've never had a problem using that word. And it was really interesting to hear you guys talking. Wow. That's interesting. Well, I'll be very interested in the feedback that we get from our listeners about where they fall on the ambitious divide. Let us know. Tweet us or or post in the Facebook group. Let's get this conversation started because if it actually was a toxic word for people born in 1964 like me and not so much for people born in when, Catherine, 1980? 1982. Then I think that's an important piece of data to have on hand. Yeah, agreed. So for Mailbag today, I hope you don't mind. I invited Scotty Reese, who joined us for our episode 284. She is the founder and CEO of A Girl's Guide to Cars. It's a website that's empowering women to be smarter, happier car owners. And I had a car question. So I called Scotty and I thought maybe some of our listeners could benefit from hearing my car question. And I know you have a car question too, Jean. So Scotty is going to do a little mailbag takeover with us today. I love that. And I love having Scotty on. It's nice to see you, Scotty. Nice to see you, too. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. All right, Catherine, this was your idea. You get to go first. So this was my idea when I reached out a week ago. And I have to say, I've already sold my car. So I'm really hoping and praying that I did it right. But basically, our garage costs in New York City went up with inflation from $175 a month to $400 a month. So we decided to sell our little Prius that we had loved for the last 10 years, listed it for 15,000 and pretty much immediately got my asking price and sold it to a lovely family that I met through Facebook Marketplace. But my question to Scotty was what I needed to do to protect myself as a seller because I was very nervous. I did some Googling and I saw that there are lemon laws in states. So I was a little concerned, although the car has been 
amazing for me with absolutely no problems for 10 years, I started thinking, what happens if I sell this car, this lovely family drives off, and the next day the engine dies? Am I protected as a seller? So Scotty, please tell me (laughs) that I am. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Catherine, you are protected. As a private individual seller, there is no obligation on your end to provide any surety or customer service or warranty or anything like that. Any private sale of a car from one individual to any purchaser, the sale is as is. If you had a dealership license, if you were a licensed auto dealer, or if you had some other sort of official capacity as a car seller, then there might be obligation. But even so, most cars that are used are sold as is. So the only thing, and by the way, they would have to take you to court. They would have to find a lawyer who would be willing to represent them, and that's going to be very hard. They would also have to really prove that you knowingly and willfully sold them a car that had serious issues. And even if you did that, it would still be very hard to prove that because those sales are considered as is sales. Now, I think it's very kind that you were concerned about selling something to someone you don't want them to have a problem. And that's wonderful. So there's some things that you can do as both a seller and as a buyer. As a seller, you can provide all of your service records. So you can say, here's the service that I had. Here, Anyone can Google the manual, the owner's manual, and find out when service is due based on the mileage of the car and the age of the car. And so you can see what the manufacturer recommends and you can provide your service records and then any maintenance or any additional maintenance or repair records. So, you know, if you replace the tires or maybe the, you know, the, I don't know, the water pump went out and you had to replace that, providing that information does help. It really helps the buyer to feel confident that they know some things have been done. Cars always need work and to know that nothing major has been done. Another thing that you can do, and as a buyer, you should always do this if you're buying a used car, and that is have a pre-sale inspection. So you could go with the buyer to a garage where a mechanic will do that inspection for anywhere from $100 to $150. Or you can call, there's an outfit called the Lemon Squad, and they will actually come to your location and they will do a pre-sale inspection and let the buyer know that or whoever's paying the bill, let them know any issues with the car. They can look for recalls. They can look at the onboard diagnostic computer and see if there's any codes that are being issued by the computer that says, oh, this thing needs to be fixed or this thing's not working right. They can also see if the car's been flooded, if it's been wrecked, if the, you know, those kinds of things that I would not be able to tell just by looking at it. And most people wouldn't, but the uh, a mechanic would. So if you really wanted to be sure that the buyer of the car was feeling secure, you might tell them, please arrange for a pre-sale inspection and I will meet you there with the car so you can have the car inspected. And uh, congratulations on a quick sale, Catherine, because it is a really incredible time right now to sell a car if you have a car to sell and uh, a tough time if you're buying a car. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, thank you so much for that. I will say I did supply them with a Carfax report the service records of our car, along with the names and phone numbers of everywhere we had ever had it serviced over the last 10 years. I told them they were welcome to call and give my car's VIN number 
to get details on what was done. And then on the bill of sale that we filed with the New York DMV, I wrote that the car was being sold as is, whereas with no warranties stated or implied. It was language I Googled and found on the internet. So I figured with those steps, I was okay. And they texted me to let me know they made it safely to Ohio. So I am, <laughs> I feel like I finally feel good about That's this. That's great. And you know what? They're probably going to have another 10 years of great performance out of that car. A little insight on the Toyota Prius. And I don't know how many miles you had on that car, but um, apparently 71,000. Oh, oh yes. There's like 300,000 more miles left on that car before the engine falls out. And it is the number one car for resale for fleet drivers and especially cab drivers because they last so long and they get great fuel economy. So congratulations on a quick sale. Thank you. Thank you for putting my mind at ease. I'm very happy to hear that. All right, Scotty, my question, and it's kind of the flip, I guess, of Catherine's question. I've been reading, like many people have, about the Inflation Reduction Act that was just signed into law that includes some new credits for electric cars, electric vehicles. And I'm driving a car I love, actually. It's a Volvo wagon. It's got 90,000 miles on it, almost. My original plan was to just drive it into the ground, right? Because I think it has a lot of life left in it. But I'm looking at this and I'm wondering, is it time with gas prices to make the switch to an electric car? And if I make the switch, are chargers agnostic. Are there enough chargers on the highway that we don't have to worry about it anymore? So there is a lot to unpack there, which is the biggest issue with electric cars. There's so much for people to understand. So I'm going to try to go through your questions so it makes sense. The first thing I would say is hold on to your Volvo, drive it for another year at least. You have 90,000 miles on it. It's going to go for a long time. The price of gas is a fluid thing. It goes up, it goes down. Unless you're really doing a ton of driving every week and you're spending like $100 a week or something on gas, I wouldn't get rid of my car right now. I would say that the EV credits are a wonderful thing, but they're a limited thing. So it's only on electric cars that are built in the United States and there's only a handful that will qualify. However, there are a number that will qualify until the end of this year. So basically the 2022 tax year, the $7,500 federal tax credit will qualify this year on cars that are sold this year. However, that's the upside. The downside is they're really hard to get. You have to sign a contract before, I think you had to have signed a contract before the bill was passed in order to get that credit because it's a, I believe it will be a mid-year shift. But you should check with your accountant on that question to know exactly what the benefit is to you as a buyer. And with the tax benefit, on uh, cars that have up until now, there are some other factors that apply. One is you have to have enough income to take advantage of that tax credit. So if you don't ever pay $7,500 in taxes a year, then that's not something that's going to benefit you. It's not necessarily an offset for purchasing an electric car. You should also consider the upcharge that dealers are getting for those cars right now. So they are putting a premium on every single 
single one of those cars. It costs, you know, anywhere from 20% or more to buy a car now than it did pre-pandemic, maybe even more. In fact, here's a statistic. Before the pandemic, the average price of a new car was $36,000. Right now, the average price of a car is $46,000. So it's gone up 25%, right? And that's the average sale. So thinking about that, the shortages, the premiums that dealers are asking, whether or not that tax credit would benefit you after going forward with the new program, it will be a discount, not a tax credit. So everybody who buys a qualifying car will benefit. And those cars have to be built in the United States. There's only a handful now, there will be more later. What I anticipate is that we'll see more and more electric cars from foreign car makers being built in the United States so that people will take advantage of those tax credits. So I don't think it's a great time to buy a new car right now if you don't have to. I think Catherine's buyers of her Prius were really smart in looking for a very good, high quality used car. If the price of gas is something that really is impacting you, just for anyone, I would say maybe look at selling the car that gets not such great fuel economy and buying something like a Prius that gets much better fuel economy or getting a used electric car. But still, those are selling for a premium too. They're selling for, I just looked at a Tesla 3, a 2018, so four-year-old Tesla 3 that had about 50,000 miles on it. And it sold for about 80% of its original sticker value. So yeah, so it's not a great time. Hold on to your Volvo, love that car. It's got a lot of life left in it, enjoy it. Maybe just curb your driving, take the train, (laughs) that kind of thing. (laughs) We moved to the city during COVID. I'm not driving that much anyway. So I don't know really what I'm all that worried about. It's just, you know, saw the tax credits. I was thinking, oh, maybe I'll get me some of those, but I will take your advice and absolutely hold on to my car for a while. (laughs) It's a convoluted topic. It's one that we're sharing a lot about on A Girl's Guide to Cars. And it's one that I think a lot of people have questions. But at the end of the day, when you sit down and you look at an electric car, beautiful, nice car, lots of great features, but $60,000 is the average price for an electric car right now it's a really tough pill to swallow. So I think only those who really have the money and are convinced and absolutely need a car and it really fits their lifestyle. And there's a lot of those people, they're the ones who are buying those cars. Thank you so much, Scotty. My pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Scotty. Great to see you again. And for anybody listening who didn't hear Scotty's episode with us, that was episode 284, An Insider's Guide to Buying and Selling Cars. And we learned so much from you. We always do. Well, thank you. Let me just take a second to tell everyone that today's episode is also sponsored by PayPal Honey. I am a big online shopper, always have been. I'm sure some of you are too. It saves me time and thanks to Honey, it often saves me money. So if you haven't heard of Honey, it is a free shopping tool that scours the internet for promo codes. And essentially it applies the best ones that it finds to your carts at checkout. For example, Honey recently saved me 20 bucks on a new pair of running shoes, and it was super easy to use. When you check out, what'll happen is that you'll see the Honey button drop down, and all you have to do is click Apply Coupons, wait a few seconds as it searches, and if Honey finds a working coupon, you'll watch the price drop in real time. So 
If you're not using Honey today, you could be missing out on substantial savings. It is free. It's easy. It only takes a few secs to install. You can get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash hermoney. Joinhoney.com slash hermoney. And in today's Thrive, many of our closets could probably use a bit of cleaning out. I know mine can. If you haven't ventured to the back of your closet in a while, you might be surprised to find old shirts that are falling apart or dresses that haven't seen the light of day in years. Your first thought might be toss them or donate them. But there's another option recycle them. Many clothing stores will now take old fabrics, repurpose them into things like purses, jackets, and wallets, and even give you a discount for bringing them back. At hermoney.com, we've got a list of retailers that will help you turn your old clothes into new money. For example, if you have jeans to recycle, there are many stores that will take them all. Blue Jeans Go Green is a denim recycling program that partners with retailers across the country to turn your denim into something new. You can visit bluejeansgogreen.org to find a full list of brands, but to just give you a sneak peek, American Eagle will give you a $10 credit toward buying new jeans if you recycle an old pair. Madewell will give you $20 off a new pair for donating an old one. Rag and Bone will give you 25% off your entire purchase of denim on the day that you donate. There's another recycling program that'll help you get rid of your more intimate clothing. It's called Nikki, spelled K-N-I-C-K-E-Y, a company that makes organic underwear. will take your old underwear, socks, bras, and tights, turn them into new materials like insulation and carpet padding. Recycling with Nikki will earn you a new free pair of the brand's organic cotton underwear. Next, if you're looking to donate old sweaters, there's a company called Love Woolies. It'll take sweaters in any condition as long as they're a minimum of 70% wool. Mail them in, Love Woolies will mail you back a gift card that you can put toward a new item. Lastly, the clothing brand Marine Layer has a t-shirt recycling program that gives back to the planet and to your wallet. For each t-shirt you recycle, you earn a $5 credit up to $25 total. And the t-shirts that you donate can be any brand, any condition, just not made of active wear fabric. You can mail in those shirts or drop them off at a Marine Layer store near you. You can also visit hermoney.com to learn more about what clothing is donatable, and what savings are waiting for you. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Laura Bazelon for helping all of us learn how to let go of our mom guilt. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.